It is good to be back with you this week. Last week, I was preaching at uh, the Texas School of Professional Photographers. Uh, for the last several years, one of our deacons, many of you know John Wilson, is a uh, teaches there. He's taught at that, that school for almost 30 years. And uh, several years back, he asked that we begin to start a worship service there for these professional photographers who would fly in from around the world, literally, and drive in from all across the United States and give them an opportunity to uh, hear the gospel. And so the first few times, I believe Paul Michael was uh, associate pastor here, and he did that in the last several years. Uh, I've had the privilege of doing that. Stephen and uh, Sandra Roberts went with us last week and uh, had a great time. I started calling that on that particular, it's usually the third or fourth, uh, I guess the fourth week of April. And when we're out that Sunday, that is Watauga East. Uh, over there. That's our East Campus, uh, one day a year. And we had a large group that met for worship and had a great time there. And of course, y'all know, uh, if you've gotten to know me very well or you have stepped into my pastor study, that I have a love for photography, in particular, uh, the photography of nature and wildlife. And uh, so it's natural for me uh, to, to try to connect with, with those guys. I don't consider myself a professional in any way. I've seen some of the work that they do. Uh, and yet, my goal is maybe a little bit different than some. Uh, photography is considered art, a fine art, and so people will do all kinds of things using uh, Lightroom or uh, uh, Photoshop to try to uh, make their photos look unique or different. My goal is, is John knows this. In fact, I, I joke with him about it. My goal is always the same. What I, my desire is to take what I am able to see with my own eyes and somehow put that in an image that I can enjoy for the next 350 or 60 days of the year that I don't get to stand there in the mountains or in front of that, that majestic animal or that incredible creature that God has created. Um, you know, I, I, I I am overwhelmed, and y'all are aware of this. You've heard me preach. I love the outdoors. I love the sunrises and the sunsets. I love looking up into space. When you can get outside of the Metroplex and have a clear sky where you can actually see the stars in, in all of their glory, uh, I love standing at the base of the Grand Tetons or a majestic waterfall. But one of the things that I've struggled with as a photographer and is trying to capture the image in the way that my eye sees it. One of the struggles that, that photographers have, for instance, when last year I was at, a, or two years ago, when Susan and I were in Southern Oregon on our vacation, we were at a, a famous waterfall called Multnomah Falls. And it's actually Northern Oregon, Southern Washington. It's on the border of Oregon and Washington. And I stood at the base of, of that waterfall. Uh, that waterfall is beautiful and, and it's greenery all around it. And, and it's famous for photographers, and yet uh, most of the time that waterfall is encompassed in mist or it's encompassed in rain, and, and uh, uh, so it's hard. You, you rarely get a photo with the, the sun on it. So I had planned our trip so that we were going to be camping just north of there, so hopefully I could try to take photos of it uh, in the evening after we set up camp and then drive back early the next morning. I did my research, and, and there's so many tourists there during the summer, it's hard to get a photo of that waterfall without tourists all around it. And so Susan and I set up a, I, I planned it that way so I could try to get there early in the morning before all the tourists would show up. And so we got our camp set up, and we hurried over there that evening. 
and it was pouring down rain, not pouring down, it was raining, drizzling rain. Then I got up there trying to take photos, and it was pouring down rain. I'm trying to get the camera dry, and I'm trying to take photos of it, and uh, trying to do a technique where I could get the, the dark shadows, you know, uh, lightened up and not have too much brightness in the, in the top of the, the photo. And so working on that, I, I got a whole bunch of images. And I went down to the truck and trying to dry off my camera equipment and everything, sat in the truck, and I'm looking through those uh, images. I called John and I said, uh, so what do you think you got some you could use? I said, yeah, I got some good ones, but they're really the typical picture that people get of Multnomah Falls with all of the, the rain or the drizzle or the, the fog around it. As I was talking to him, the sky broke and the sun came out. And I noticed that all of the tourists had left during the rain. So I grabbed my tripod and I ran back up the, the hillside and, and began to take some photos of it. And, uh, and in fact, the problem is I had to use a special technique, though, because your camera can't see all of the range that the human eye can see. You know, the human eye can see all of the glory and all of the beauty and the light part of the waterfall and the dark where, where the shadows are down below. But you take a photo of that and you either have the perfect lighting on the bottom and the top is all washed out or you get the perfect lighting up on the top of the fall and the bottom part is all dark and you can't see it. And so I used a special technique to try to bring that out so that you could do the best you could to, to get an image as my eye saw it. But the, the problem is always there. I can never, no matter how hard I try, whether I'm standing at the base of the waterfall or the base of the Grand Tetons, I can never get a perfect image that communicates all of God's creation like it is when you're standing there. You just can't do it. No matter how hard you work at it, you, you might get some beautiful images. And I love walking into my, my office now. After COVID, you all know, I had never printed anything. None of the, all of those were on the computer somewhere. And I got stuck at home in COVID, so I started printing some. And the more I printed, the more I liked it. So the more I put on my wall, the more memories I had. And, uh, and yet it's, it's never the same as being there. Well, can you imagine trying to, capture the image of God. Capture an image of who God is, what he looks like, his glory, his power, his, his, his holiness. Can you imagine trying to capture the image of our God, a God who stands above all of creation, who created everything that we see, the God of all, Hebrews tells us that if you want to see God, he sent us a picture. Let me read that real quick. Our text today is from Colossians chapter 1. So you can hang on to that. Colossians 1 is what you can turn to. But hear this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory, of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you want to see God, look to Jesus. If you want to get the, the best picture, 
the, the prophets in many ways preached and taught and described and gave, had visions and they, they wrote down all of these images of God. And for, for decades and for centuries, God spoke to us through the prophets, but he eventually, he sent us the exact representation of his nature in his son. Jesus is the revelation of who God is so that we might know God as best we can, comprehend God in our little minds, in our human brains. You know, my, my mind still cannot comprehend the vastness of all of God's creation. Many of you have seen that famous image that came from the Hubble telescope about 20 years ago as it was moving out beyond the edge of our solar system. And NASA turned that telescope around, and I wish I would have prepared it for you, but many of you have seen it because I've used it before. NASA turned the Hubble telescope around before it was to, to go out beyond the reaches of our, our solar system to try to get an image of the Earth. And it just happened that there was a ray of light in this huge, majestic image, one ray of light and a small blue dot that looked like a piece of dust. And that, from the edge of our solar system, was an image of the Earth. And our solar system is but one in the, in, in the midst of millions of solar systems in our galaxy. And our galaxy is one in millions of galaxies that God has created. And the scripture says he not only created it all, he is outside of it all. He is above all of that. I, I feel so small when I stand at the base of, of Grand Teton or when I, when I was to stand across the valley from Mount McKinley in Alaska. I, I seem so tiny, and I am. But when you zoom out and you realize that that mountain is just a speck on this earth, and this earth is just a speck in our solar system, God created it all. There's no way that our minds can comprehend it, but if you want the best image of God you can get, look to his son. Read with me this text in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. This is a, a hymn, it's believed to be a hymn that was read or sung in the early churches. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In Christ, he, the, the he in this text is Jesus, the son. He is the image of the invisible God. Part of the reason he is the image of the invisible God, the best picture that we can get is because he is God. He was there in the beginning. There's a word that's used here, uh, when it says he's the firstborn over all of creation. Some of our translations have a hard time with that. 
some of our minds have a hard time with that because we ask the question, well, if he was born, he's the firstborn, then how is he truly God from the beginning? The way that, that Paul is using the language there, uh, the, the, in fact, the particular Greek word, prototakos, that word is used most often in Greek to refer to one who has preeminence, not necessarily, it refers to the firstborn in that position of authority, that, that position of rank. So he ranks first above all things. He ranks first over all of creation. And, and the idea is, if you study the Old Testament, when you speak of the firstborn, the firstborn was one who would receive the blessing. The firstborn is the one who'd received the inheritance. He had the highest rank. And so when Paul uses that word here, firstborn, he's not saying that Jesus was born of God, that he came later on down, down the line somewhere. He's talking about the rank that Jesus holds as the firstborn. And that's why here in the, in the Greek, there's a, the, the second word that's important here. And I don't want to get too deep into this because y'all give me a hard time when I do it. But uh, the word of it, it here is translated in our CSB and in the New King James Version is over. So some of your translations would say he's the firstborn of all of creation. Your Christian Standard Bible translates that over all of creation, and there's a reason for that. It translates that of as a genitive, a subordination. The idea is that he is over all of creation, not that he came out from or he's a part of creation. Jesus is the ranking one, the, the, the highest one over all of creation. Well, why is it that Jesus is Lord of creation? Now, Paul's going to give us three reasons in this, the, the first three verses here of why Jesus is the ruler or the Lord of all of creation. First is because he's the creator. Verse 16, everything was created by him. Well, what do you mean by everything? Everything. Everything in heaven and everything on earth. Everything. Well, what about all of that stuff that we can't see? Yes, everything that you cannot see, whether with your human eye, maybe you have to have a microscope to try to see it, or maybe you have to have a telescope to try to see it because it's so far off. All of those things that you can't see, he created. And everything that you can see, he created. Everything that's visible and everything that's invisible. Now, that's important because I'm going I'm to share one of my dentist theories here in a little bit that some of you have heard before. There's things that we cannot see with the human eye. The, 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 the minute part, particular matter that we study with electron microscopes and try to imagine and, and try to model. And, and, and since I was a kid, the, the models of, of the atom have changed over time and, and they've tried to explain things with quantum physics and and all kinds of mathematical theories to try to get down to the makeup of everything, the makeup of matter at the, at the smallest particular level that we cannot see. Even with, a, with the greatest microscopes, we can't see the particular matter at the very root of all things. And there's things out there beyond the galaxies that we cannot see. God created them all. Christ is the agent of creation of all of the heavens and all of the earth. And lest we forget, that also means all authority and power. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Christ didn't just create what we would refer to as creation. Okay, 
the beautiful mountains, the vast oceans, the, the stars in the sky. He created all of that. But all, all rulers, all authority, all powers fall under his dominion. In a moment, in a moment, he could destroy them. People are worried about what the government's doing. Let me tell you, you better be more concerned about what Jesus has to say. Because no matter how powerful a government, no matter how grand a dictator, that dictator has no authority in comparison to Christ. All things have been created through him and for him. He rules over creation. He is Lord of all of creation because he created it all. He's the maker. The second reason that he is the Lord of all creation is because he came before all things, and he ranks above all things. You see that in verse 17. He is before all things. Christ was here before creation in time, and Christ ranks above creation in authority. He was here when there was nothing else except God in his triune existence. Christ was forever in history. He was forever before history. He was. He is the, the ruler over creation because he came before and stands above and beyond all of creation. So he created it, he came before it, stands above it, and then here's the one that I absolutely love, that this little half verse of Scripture, it gets me excited. And by him, all things hold together. It's been a long, long time since I sat in a physics class. So I actually went back this week and did a little bit more looking at it. And man, quantum mechanics and mathematical theories that underlie uh, the existence and, 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 and the understanding of particular matter have changed over the, those years, over the, the 40 years since I sat in a high school physics class or in a college physics class. But in all reality, there's still an underlying theme in all of it. There's a handful of forces that hold the protons and neutrons together at the core of an atom, the nucleus of an atom. There's a, there are four forces that, that you might find listed. They have to do with gravitational pull, they have to do with electromagnetic force, and they have to do with what they call strong and weak forces. But all of those forces still are simply forces that, that the human mind is trying to explain and trying to understand with complex, complex mathematical formulas to model what the smallest, most minute particle is and how it is held together. It, it's not a lot unlike the, the models that I read about and studied when I was studying physics. It's not a lot unlike what we can imagine a little bit better of the models of, of, of the force that holds the, the, the earth in orbit around, or, or the, the sun and, and holds the moon in orbit around the earth. Those weird, strange forces, gravitational forces that, that, that keep the, the moon in rotation at, at just the right distance so it's not too far away and not, it doesn't come crashing into the earth. 
all of these incredible, majestic electromagnetic and gravitational forces that somehow just happen to be, that we try to understand with human minds and, and mathematics. And so you will ask a scientist, well, what is it that holds the electrons in orbit around the nucleus of an, of an atom? And they'll, they'll describe to you in, in some great mathematical formula. They're, they're even struggling with it, the idea that it looks like a planetary-type solar system. And that's what I was taught as a kid. Now they're starting to, to think that, that the electrons are not really particles, but they're waves. And whatever, you still have some mysterious force out there, something that holds it together. And you can try to measure it, and you can try to quantify it, but there's still something that holds it together. Colossians 1.17 gives us the answer. The Creator Himself who created it is that force that holds all of creation together. Christ the Creator keeps the, the, the earth in orbit around the sun. He's the one who keeps the moon in orbit around the earth at just the right distance and just the right speed. He's the one who holds the atom together. What, atom, what happens when an atom comes apart? What happens if you were to split an atom, separate an atom so that neutrons came flying out of the center of that atom, that, that incredible molecular force had been destroyed somehow. Well, we found out at Hiroshima and Nagasaki and in the Pacific Islands, even a controlled explosion of split atoms creates an incredible amount of nuclear energy that, that causes all kinds of heat. Everything in the area melts. Hear this. This is from a different author of Scripture, from Peter. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and on that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works in it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people should, you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. What's going to happen one of these days? Often you'll hear it said that one of these days God is going to destroy this earth because all of it's evil. He's going to destroy the heavens. No, he's not. He's just going to let go. And when he lets go, and, and that particular matter that everything seems to be made up of comes apart, it will dissolve with fervent heat. Second Peter chapter 3 says here that it will, the heavens will dissolve, the earth will dissolve, the elements will dissolve when Jesus lets go. He'll create a new heaven and a new earth for his people that will be perfect, that will be without sin. What a glorious day that will be. But here, understand this, he is Lord of creation because he's the creator. He was here before creation and he holds it together. All he has to do is let go and it will melt with fervent heat. We can't even imagine 
that type of subatomic calamity where every element dissolves. When the force that holds it together lets go, he is Lord of creation. The second half of this hymn in Colossians 1 tells us that he is Lord of his church. Man, it seems almost like as I read this, he's Lord of creation, he's Lord of it all, he's Lord of, of, of everything that's been made. It almost seems like a, uh, I don't know, a step down, a let down to say, well, he's Lord of the church. Well, of course he's Lord of the church, right? But we'll, we'll spend a little bit more time because Paul gives us three reasons that he's Lord of the church. But it's not a step down, it's a step up. And here's why. Creation is temporary. The church is eternal. Those whom God brought to life, those whom he gave eternal life to, his church, his bride, will live forever. And so oh, we, we think, I mean, I can, it's hard for me to even imagine. I look at the mountains, I look at the seas, I look at those photos that have been taken by the telescopes of distant galaxies that, that display so much beauty and so much glory. And I look at all of that, and our, our image... Hear me, our image of the church seems so minute and so small in comparison to creation. But that's not God's image. He loves his church even more than he loves creation. He loves you and me, his kids, more than he cares about creation he'll let this go and he'll make a new creation and he can do it over and over and over again but when he saved your soul and he saved mine and we become a part of his church we're forever wow what an incredible picture and he is lord of his church he is lord of his church because he rose again. We just celebrated Easter. He says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Jesus is Lord of the church because he is the one who conquered death. He rose up out of the grave, and when he rose up out of the grave, conquering death, hell, and the grave, he launched something new. He launched his church. And it was through our faith and trust in him and his death burial and resurrection that we come to a relationship with him but without the resurrection there would be no eternal church because there would be no eternal life he conquered the enemy the greatest enemy that we all have the enemy of death when he came up out of the grave and he offers us a partnership in that same resurrection if you have never put your faith and trust in Christ, you are not in partnership with him in the resurrection, and you will experience the grave and you will experience death. But if you have put your faith and trust in Christ and you are walking in a relationship with him, you are in partnership with him, and the grave has no authority and no reign over you. He is the, the Lord of the church because he created the church when he came up out of the grave. He is the Lord of the church because in him, verse 19 says, the fullness of the Godhead dwelled. Some of the, the authors that I, commentaries that I read suggested that, that in the Greek world, 
you had about 30 gods that, that were listed among the, the Greek gods. And when all of those gods came together, that great pantheon of gods, all 30 of those gods were represented in one place that the fullness of the Godhead would be represented in all 30 gods. Those commentators believe that this is Paul's answer and a reminder that Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead. There's no need for 30. There's only one. In him, we have everything necessary for righteousness and godliness. In Christ, y'all just studied Ephesians chapter 1 a couple weeks ago, uh, verse 3. It says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. If you continue to read the next several verses there, all of the incredible gifts, whether it's the, the blessing of forgiveness, of justification, or of sanctification, or glorification, or our inheritance that we have with the saints, everything in that passage we gain in Christ. We don't need another God. Jesus is enough. In Christ, we have everything. He is the fullness of the Godhead. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in the person of Christ. Now, that's kind of confusing for our little pea brains because, wait a minute, don't we believe in the Trinity? There's the Father, there's the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes, we do. But not, you cannot take and set aside any one of the Trinity and say the fullness of the Godhead does not dwell in Him, in the, in the Spirit of the Holy God. When Jesus said, I'm going to leave you, but I will return, and then He changes His language and says, I'm going to send my Spirit, He'll be in you and He'll be with you. That's Christ in us. That's why Paul can say that Christ in you is the hope of glory. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in the Spirit. The fullness of Godhead dwells in the Son. And the fullness of Godhead dwells in the Father. In Christ, we have everything necessary. He is enough. This is where sometimes I'll have a slight disagreement on a, what would be referred to as a secondary theological issue with some of my very good, some of my very good friends who are charismatic where they speak of a second blessing, that, yeah, you need to be saved and, and, and you receive Christ, but you still need later to receive the Holy Spirit. I just don't see that in Scripture. I think that in Christ you have the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell with you. Our problem is, as human beings, well, sometimes we want to get saved, but we don't want to be controlled by the Spirit, and so we don't submit to the rulership of Christ in our hearts and lives. But in Christ, we have everything necessary because in him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells. And then Paul goes on to say at the end of this, him, and through him, he reconciled everything himself. So it's because of his resurrection, because he is God, and because of his sacrifice on the cross that Jesus is Lord of his church. Once again, it seems like Paul's stepping from the resurrection back to the cross, but what you have to remember is without the, without the cross, without Christ dying on the cross to shed his blood sacrificially for our sins, for your sin and my sin, we would have no hope of being able to stand before a holy God. He died for us on the cross and shed his blood so that we could be washed of our sins. And then when he rose up out of the grave, he guaranteed eternal life. But it was in his 
death on the cross and he reconciled us through his blood. He made peace between you and I and the Father. Without the shed blood of Christ, without the cross, we wouldn't have forgiveness of sins. Though there, there, Christ could conquer eternal life. I mean, he could conquer death and, and gain eternal life. But if he had not made the sacrifice on the cross, he'd be the only one there. But because he died sacrificial on the cross and shed his blood for you and me, we can be cleansed of our sins and we can be reconciled to God with our, our sin forgiven. I want to back up for just a second because there's no accident that Paul jumps into this hymn, and I believe he jumps into this hymn in explanation to a large extent of what he said in, in, at the end of, verses of, of the last section, verses 12, 13, and 14. When Paul was giving thanks and he was praying for the church, he said these words. He ended that section before he jumped into the hymn with this, Give thanks to, giving thanks to the Father, who enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. In Him we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. In Christ we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the inheritance of light, the kingdom of His Son. As I as I preached that last week at the photography conference, I thought back about uh, to, to, the, to Jesus dying on that middle cross with a thief on either side. And one, both of those thieves were in the same position. Both of them were crooks and criminals that were dying in their sin. One of them shunned the light. One of them made fun of the light. One of them laughed at the light. One of them cursed at the light. And sometimes we do that. Sometimes if I have a really bad headache, I don't want the bright light on, right? I say that jokingly, but sometimes when I'm walking in sin, I don't want the light to shine on my life. I, I, I want to do what I'm going to do in darkness. So sometimes we shun the light. What you had... Two thieves there. One completely shunned the light. The other turned toward the light and asked for help. And when he asked for help, Jesus made an eternal transaction. He said, today, because, you, because he believed, today you will be with me in paradise. He took that thief out of the kingdom of darkness and transitioned him and put him into the kingdom of light. He inherited with all of the saints the glory of the kingdom of God. Not because he'd been a good person, not because he'd been baptized, not because he'd gone to church all of it. He hadn't done any of those things. He was an undeserving sinner who had no hope, who was over here in darkness, and he turned toward the light, and he reached out to Jesus, and he said, Please, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus took him out of the domain of darkness and transferred him into the kingdom of light. He reconciled him through his blood shed on the cross. That church, that, my friends, is the promise that you and I have. It doesn't matter how long we lived in the light. It matters that we turn, or in the darkness, it matters that we turn toward Christ and embrace him. 
and receive that offering that he's given us. Because of that, because of his sacrifice on the cross, the church is his. We wouldn't be here without his shed blood. Because of the cross, because of the resurrection, and because all of the fullness of the God had dwelt in him, he is the Lord of the church. Man, he loves his church. Now, we live in a culture, and we live in a time where I hear a lot of people say things like this. Well, I, I'm a Christian, and I love Jesus, but I don't, I don't love his church. I don't like institutional religion. I don't like his church. Here's the problem, folks. Jesus loves his church. And if you were to tell me, well, pastor, I love you and I want to hang out with you, but I hate your wife. I'm not going to spend any time with you. Jesus loves his church. More than that, he's, the church is the reason he died and the church is the reason he rose. And if you can argue somehow that I'm a Christian, but, but I don't love his church and I'm not a part of his church, you're not a Christian. You're simply not. Christ died for the church and he rose again for the church and he is Lord. He is head of the body, the church. And if you're going to walk in a relationship with, with Christ, you're going to be a part of his church. What does it mean you have to be there every time the doors swing open? But it does mean that you're part of a local body of believers where you're plugged in and you're finding your place and you're serving him and you're connected to his church. Just as he is Lord of creation, he is Lord of his church. And as glorious and magnificent as it is for us to stand here and think of the God of creation, creation will not last forever. His church will. When all of those elements burn up with fervent heat, don't forget the last verse that I read there in 2 Peter chapter 3. Based on his promise, verse 13, based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. All of creation that he's Lord over will just be dissolved. All of those whom he died for that put their faith and trust in him will live forever. That's the promise and the hope that we have in the church. How can we ever somehow in our minds get a clear image of this magnificent, holy, invisible God. How can we hope to understand God? He tells us here, if you want to capture an image of God's power, you're going to see it displayed in the glory and the majesty of nature, but you're going to see the greatest display of his power in his victory over death at the resurrection of Christ from the grave. If you want to see the power of God, look to the resurrection where he defeated death. If you want to see the love of God, you want to get the best image in your mind that you can of God's love and character and compassion for you, turn to the cross. Because there at the cross, you're going to see his love and his mercy and his grace more clearly than any other way. Christ is the image of God and the exact representation of his nature. What a beautiful picture we get of Jesus, of God, when we look to Jesus. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. 
you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.